0: Well, take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to turn for the first time now into chapter 11. Last Sunday, we concluded chapter 10, and as we concluded that chapter, we saw how Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator of all things, put His deity on display And he put his deity on display, not only for his disciples, but for the jealous Jews who had encircled him, trying to stone him and arrest him. He put it on display really in two ways. He displayed his deity through his words and through his works. Well, as we come to this passage today, I've entitled today's sermon, not deity on display, but deity on delay. And I think you'll see as we look at this passage exactly why I landed on that title. If there's one thing we all have in common as citizens of 2023, it is we struggle with being delayed. Would you agree with that? If you have a flight that you've got to catch at Chattanooga's Metropolitan Airport, and if for some reason the plane, because of mechanical reasons, or when uh, Daryl and I went to Africa, we couldn't go to Africa because one of the pilots didn't show up. We were delayed about 18 hours. When you're delayed in Chattanooga, you're likely going to another airport where you're going to connect a connecting flight to your final destination and hopefully get involved in that engagement or appointment. If you're delayed, it messes up everything else, right? We don't like to be delayed. We don't like to be interrupted. Uh, If you have a doctor's appointment, you expect that within a reasonable amount of time, you will eventually be moved to the examination room because you have an appointment. This is what we expect. If you're in church and the countdown clock hits zero, you expect your preacher to be up at the podium within 2.7 seconds, right? That's what we anticipate in 2023. Uh, Let me ask you, have you ever been at a red light and you're one car from the line and you see the car right in front of you at the red light and the driver is clearly looking down at his or her phone? How long does it take you to hit your horn when the light turns green, right? momentarily for me. Get going, buddy. We are impatient as a people, as a culture. Probably the occupation that requires maybe the most patience is that of an elementary school teacher. I heard one time about this particular teacher up north in the wintertime, had 21 first graders in her class, and it was time to get her class ready to go to the dismissal area. And so she was helping all of the little six-year-olds put on their jackets, put on their gloves, put on their boots, and she gets through 20 of them, and she gets to little Johnny, and Johnny uh, puts on his jacket, and then she helps him put on the boots, and then Johnny says, these are not my boots. So she pulls the boots off, and he says, these are my brother's boots. Mommy said I could wear them today. (laughs) So she puts the boots back on, and then she says, where are your gloves? And he says, in the toe of my boots. They were too big. So she runs out of the room crying, obviously. We are impatient as a people. Let me ask you, do you ever get impatient with God? That God doesn't move or God doesn't act or God doesn't intervene in the way you expect and you sense and you experience, in your perspective, deity on delay. What are you waiting for, Lord? Jesus' close friends, very intimate relationships of friendship and love with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They experience here at the beginning of chapter 11, deity on delay. Let's see how it happens. We'll read the first 16 verses of John chapter 11. This is the inspired word of God. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment And wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now there's a couple of geographic and personality markers and points I want to clarify before I begin to break down the text. First of all, geographically, it says that the town they were in is this village of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the village of Bethany. And you see on the map there, it's about two miles from the capital city of Jerusalem, where all that turmoil went down at the end of the previous chapter. So he's just two miles away from Jerusalem. That's where their home is. But that's not where he is at the moment. He's up beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing. That's what we saw again at the end of the last chapter. John also says this is a Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Well, so we've heard of many Marys if you've read the Bible. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this is not even Mary Magdalene. This is Mary who is the sister of Martha and also of Lazarus, who's ill and then died. And John even says this is the Mary who anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, we don't find out about this account from John until the next chapter, though it is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And so what that means for us is that this gospel account, written primarily to believing Christians, John gives this personality point. Hey, the Mary, by the way, is the one you've heard about, the one that's a clear story and account within our circles. It's the Mary that anointed Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So, so I wanted to clarify those two things before we dive into the text. Now, I want us to begin our consideration of Jesus' delay here, deity on delay, by asking you this question. Look at the next slide. How would your life be different... If you were absolutely convinced of these two things, number one, Jesus loves you, and number two, he knows what he's doing. How would your life, how would your perspective, how would your patience be different if you were absolutely convinced? And when I say absolutely convinced, I mean from the tip of your head to the very tippy tip of your toes. That you know, that you know, that you know, one, Jesus loves you, and he knows what he's doing. What if you believe this and knew this and were confident of this in an intellectual sense? Just like we know intellectually the city of Chattanooga is in the Hamilton County. We know that. We know Jesus loves us, and and he knows what he's doing. But what if you knew it in an experiential sense? Just like when I know that, I know that, I know. When I go home today, my dog Murphy will be at the top of the stairs waiting on me. I know that. But what if you knew this in an existential sense? When you got up this morning, you didn't have to wonder if gravity was going to keep your feet on the floor. You know, existentially, by your existence, these things will happen. What if you knew that Jesus loves you, and two, he knows what he's doing? Now, I don't assume everyone in here is a Christian. Some of you are not Christian, and you know it. Some of you are not Christian, and you don't know it. But if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a sheep and he is your good shepherd, then knowing these things about the shepherd changes everything. Interpreting life through this grid, through this lens, Jesus loves you and he knows what he's doing. It will bring us comfort and confidence when we perceive those seasons that deity is on delay. I want you to imagine... Jesus and his disciples are beyond the Jordan, and a breathless messenger shows up. And as he tries to catch his breath, he begins to tell Jesus about Lazarus. Lord, you must come quick to Bethany. Lazarus, your friend, your beloved, is sick. He's sick unto death. You must come now. Now, our immediate response to that message from the messenger would be that, well, Jesus is going to stop everything he's doing, and he's going to go to Bethany immediately. But that is not what Jesus does. He delays. Two days he delays. And that goes against our expectations. I want you to imagine what's happening in Bethany. Martha is outside the house and she's pacing back and forth. She's looking at the horizon. She can do the math. It Takes a day or two for the messenger to get to Jesus. It takes a day or two for Jesus to get back. Here it is day three. Day four, still know Jesus. I want you to imagine Mary is on the inside of the, the house. And there is Lazarus, and he's opening his eyes. And every time he opens his eyes, he's expecting to see the face of his friend, Jesus. Mary is comforting him and trying to relieve his fever with cold, wet cloths. But still, Jesus is a no show. Martha and Mary then. They go into mourning because Lazarus dies. They take his corpse, and like every good Jewish family would do, they would wrap the corpse in strips of cloth and cover it with spices. They would lay his body in a shallow grave and roll the stone in front of it. Jews did not embalm bodies like the Egyptians did to preserve them, and so they bury them quickly upon death. When Jesus finally does get around to showing up, the text tells us that he had been dead for four days. Can you imagine what's going through the mind of these sisters? Where were you? We sent for you. The time came and went when you should have arrived. Have you ever experienced a similar kind of situation? You begged God with tears Please intervene with my child. Intervene in this marriage. Intervene in this illness. And silence. Nothing. It seems as if heaven is not even listening. And what happens? You begin to ask those why questions. Anybody besides me ask some of those why questions? From this passage, I want us to try to answer some of those why questions and consider reasons for Jesus delaying then and Jesus delaying now. Three things on your outline I want you to see. Number one, we see deity on delay because of the purpose of delay, that being glory. Glory. The purpose of him delaying is glory. That's identified in verse four clearly. Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I want you to circle that phrase, glory of God. That's the purpose of the delay. That's the reason Jesus stayed an additional two days, the glory of God. And we know God is all about his glory. God is all about his glory. And I don't say that trite phrase uh, flippantly. The glory of God, his fame, his renown, his brilliance is the overarching purpose behind everything God does. His glory is what motivates every providence that enters your life, every happy providence, every painful providence. It is all Motivated and purposed because of the glory of God. And I want you to think about it. As soon as Jesus heard the word from the messenger, did Jesus have to go to Bethany to heal Lazarus? No, he did not. Think back into chapter four of this book. There is a nobleman's son who is sick. And from many miles away, because of the nobleman's faith, Jesus heals the son. He didn't have to be there. He didn't have to touch him. He didn't have to say a word. He healed him. Jesus did not have to go to Bethany to heal Lazarus. But he chose not to do that because not healing Lazarus would be the pathway to God's greatest glory. Let me say that again. Not healing Lazarus would be the pathway to God's greatest glory. In fact, look at verse 4. He says this illness... Does not lead to death. Now we know that Lazarus did in fact die. (laughs) So what does Jesus mean? This illness will not lead to death. Well, he plainly told his disciples, he's dead. You don't understand what I'm saying. The metaphor of sleep, you don't get it. What he means is this does not lead to death in the ultimate final sense. Lazarus would one day die and he would be buried in a grave, but it would not be this day and it would not be this time. This illness would not ultimately lead to death because, spoiler alert, in case you don't know the story, in two Sundays, we'll find out Jesus raises him from the dead after four days of death. Of course, the disciples, again, they misinterpret sleep, and Jesus says Lazarus is asleep. They said, What? Well, Lord, if he's asleep, that's a good thing. The best kind of thing for these types of illness, just get lots of rest. So Lazarus is resting. Excellent. Just let him sleep. He's taking a long nap. He'll eventually recover. He'll come out of the illness. And Jesus says plainly, He's dead, fellas. He's gone. And Jesus delays two more days even after that. Why? Because then there would be no question that the power of Jesus has resurrected four day dead Lazarus. Uh, There is a superstition among some within Judaism in the first century that. When someone died, their soul hovered above their body for three days. So Lazarus has been dead for four days. There's no chance his soul reanimated his body apart from the word of Jesus. And as the King James Version translates it later in this chapter, surely, Lord, he stinketh. I think that's one of the best King James translations there are. He's been dead for four days. There is an odor but Jesus does all this so that the glory of God would occur. And look at the end of this phrase, this verse. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is what we considered last week. Towards the end of chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. They are united in essence, in purpose, in identity. We are one. If you see me, you see the Father, he says in John 14. And here he says, this glory that's going to occur, it's a glory to God and it's a glory for the Son. I wonder, do you think about what will bring God the greatest glory in your times of difficulty or hardship? Regularly, you send me text messages or Facebook messages or phone calls or emails asking me to pray for you. And I can tell you honestly, as soon as I get that message I pray for you immediately unless I'm right in the middle of doing something. And I'll pray for your health. I'll pray for your surgery. I'll pray for your loved one. I'll pray for your relationship. But you need to know, I almost always conclude my prayers for you with these words. But God, you do in their life whatever is gonna bring you the most glory. So if you don't want me to pray that prayer, don't ask me to pray for you. Because <laughs> that's what I'm praying for you. And bringing God the most glory may not mean healing. Bringing God the most glory may not mean restoration of the relationship. God is glorified in a myriad of ways that we don't understand. In fact, look at this next slide. Sometimes the path of our pain is the path to God's greatest glory. This is the purpose behind all that God does. His glory, the glory of God and that of his son, Jesus. But secondly, I want us to see from this account the product of delay. What is the product? Growth. Growth. Look again at verse 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad. Cairo, it's typically translated to rejoice greatly rarely do we see Jesus rejoicing in the New Testament, but here he's rejoicing that Lazarus has died. For your sake, I rejoice. I am exceedingly glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. I want you to circle that phrase, that you may believe. Jesus was saying one reason I am delaying One reason I'm not going whenever people expect me to go or function when people may be anticipating me to go is because there will be a product from this delay. There will be something produced in us through this painful providence. What is it? It is growth. He's trying to teach us something. He's trying to grow our faith so that you may believe. He's also trying to teach us that he has the power over death. And if Jesus has the power over death, and friend, he has the power over absolutely everything and anything. Now the disciples here, they are absolutely dumbfounded that Jesus would even consider going back to Jerusalem. Um, Lord, do you not remember what happened last time we were there close to Jerusalem? There were these jealous Jews gathered around you, this mob violence. They had stones in their hands. They wanted to kill you. What are you thinking? Wanting to go back to Jerusalem. But Jesus knows Returning to Jerusalem, even at the risk of his own life, will produce in them this faith, this belief, this trust. In verse 42, we'll consider in a couple weeks, he reveals that this all went down the way it went down, quote, so that they may believe that you sent me. This whole episode is intended by the Lord to engender in them this product of faith, that their faith would grow. I've mentioned through our study in the Gospel of John that there are seven sign miracles. This is the seventh here in chapter 11. There is another miracle, and it's called the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But these are the seven sign miracles that display Jesus' nature and his character. It's interesting that these seven sign miracles are kind of bookended by the two, the first one and the seventh one, that are somewhat similar in scope. If you'll remember the first miracle, it was in chapter 2. It was whenever Jesus turned the water into wine. Remember what was happening there? Someone very close to Jesus, someone that Jesus loved intimately, his mom, comes to him and said, uh, Lord, the caterer miscalculated. We have run out of wine. You've got to do something. And what did Jesus say? My time has not yet come. There might be a delay from your expectation mom but then he did create wine out of water and it was the best wine that ever drunk before you move into this seventh miracle and there's a delay of time with someone that he loves intimately Lazarus his friend and so Jesus here in this seventh miracle he does it to engender in them this deeper growth and it seems his decision to go back to Jerusalem is already producing this product of growth in his disciples, at least in one in Thomas. Look at this curious verse, verse 16, the last one of our passage. The text says, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, Thomas in church history sometimes gets a bad rap, doesn't he? Why? Because in chapter 20 of John, after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, the women have seen Jesus alive. The disciples have seen Jesus alive. They tell Thomas, and what does Thomas say? Oh, unless I see those scars where the spikes impaled him to the cross, unless I can put my hand in that gaping wound at his side, I'll never believe. Now, the Bible doesn't call him this, but history has called him what? Doubting Thomas. Well, here in chapter 11, he is courageous Thomas. He is tenacious, Thomas. He is audacious, Thomas. All right, fellas, if Jesus is going to die, pack up, let's go with him, and we're going to die too. Now, here's the thing. He would not ultimately die here, but he would ultimately die for Jesus. He would give his life answering the call of discipleship that Jesus gave in Luke 9, and it's the call of discipleship I hope you have answered. What's the call? He said to all If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, that's an instrument of execution, daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Thomas said, I'm ready to die. Fellas, let's go and die with our Lord. Little did he know he would not die in the short term, but he would die for Jesus, as would 10 of those other disciples in the long term. And in those times when Jesus is accomplishing his purposes in our lives through these seasons of delay, when he presses pause on what we think he ought to be doing, when he tells us, wait, what is he doing? He's accomplishing his purpose the glory of God and he's producing something in us faith he's growing us in our faith so that you may believe now that leads to the third and final truth I want us to consider about deity on delay and that is number three the persuasion of delay you're good (laughs) you're good he loves you What was it that persuaded Jesus to delay going to Bethany? What was it that persuaded him to wait to respond to those close friends that he loved? The motivating factor may be surprising to us. He delayed because of this good gift. He loved them. He loved them. And when we come to know and understand on some level how much Jesus loves us, we will see that as a good gift from the Lord as well. Now, the fact that He loved this family and they loved Him is woven all through this chapter 11. You, you, the second verse, as John is writing this, he, he tells us that Mary, this Mary is the one who anointed Jesus with the expensive ointment and wiped His feet with their hair. You don't do that for somebody unless you love them. You move to verse 3. The message from the messenger to Jesus was, Lord... The one whom you love is ill. There is an intimacy of love and deep affection between Jesus and this first family of Bethany. When we consider the love they share with each other, it's not at all surprising that Mary and Martha would send a message knowing Jesus' love. You know, sometimes the smallest word can make the biggest difference. Sometimes the smallest word in our Bible can make the biggest difference. I hope you have your Bible open or look on the screen. I want to point out this one small word at the beginning of verse 6, the word so. So. It's the Greek word un, and it means so. <laughs> it's most often actually translated in our New Testament as Therefore. In the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of this text, it says ergo. You ever heard the word ergo? Think of what's being said here. Think of what is being communicated. And think of how we would probably finish the sentence. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, ergo, he made haste to get to them. That's how we'd write it. Jesus loved them passionately, a deep affection for them. Ergo, he didn't waste a second to get to their side. But that is not what John records. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, ergo, because he loved them, he stayed two more days. Do you see this craziness? (laughs) Why did you stay? Because I love you. Why did you keep this from me, Lord? Because I love you. Why did you make me endure this hard providence? Because of my deep and abiding affection for you. Friends, this is not how we define love today. This is not how we understand love today. We function with a completely different definition of love than than the love that's expressed here by Jesus for his close friends. Meditating on this reality, I've come up with what I would call an implicit definition for love. An implicit definition for love. I I chose this word implicit very carefully. used my thesaurus implicitly. This word implicit means to imply something. By the way we act, by the way we respond, by the way we expect other people to act in loving, our implicit definition of love is completely different than the love we see here. We all tend towards this implicit definition of love. Here it is. Love is whatever maximizes my immediate happiness. I would say this is the kind of love we function under. Not one that we would say out loud, maybe, or we would verbalize, but we function with this implicit idea of what love is. Love is whatever maximizes my immediate happiness. Look at your children, right? You don't love me. Why did they say that? Because the candy that is in the strategic location at the checkout, you said, no, you can't have it. No, you don't love me. You did not maximize their immediate happiness. You didn't let them get that toy or go to that thing. You don't love me. But we don't just see it in children. We see it in adults as well. In our world with adults, people will live any manner of lifestyle. They will be be involved in any form of sin. And they will want their friends. They will want their family They will want the church to accept and to condone and, yes, even celebrate that lifestyle or that sin. And when you don't celebrate or accept or condone that lifestyle, what do they say? You don't love me. You see, the sin is fun. It's enjoyable. It maximizes their immediate happiness. And if you don't condone that sin, well, their translation is, well, you must not love Jesus or love like Jesus because you don't love me for who I am. See? This is the world's definition of love. Whatever would maximize my immediate happiness. And friends, we can have the same response to God. We can question God's love for us because he doesn't come and he doesn't do whatever we expect him to do immediately to uh, mitigate or maximize our happiness in the moment. We may never verbalize this, but this is what we think. But guess what? Jesus doesn't operate with this definition of love. He has a completely different definition. Jesus is saying, I love you so much. I love you more than you can possibly comprehend. And because I love you, I'm not coming. Because I love you, I'm not alleviating this painful situation. Because I love you so desperately, Lazarus, I love you, I'm going to let you die. This is why Christianity is so difficult for many to accept because it is contrary to this implicit definition of love. So based on what we see from Jesus and hear from Jesus in this text, here's how I would say this is a Jesus-y definition of love. Whatever is for your ultimate good and maximizes God's glory. Jesus' expressions of love for you won't maximize your immediate happiness, but they are for your ultimate good and they will maximize God's eternal glory. This is what we see from Jesus in this passage, though Mary and Martha cannot initially see it. Jesus, in a deep act of love that is for their good, their faith will be grown, their, their belief will be developed Jesus is going to explode their growth through this trial. How is this love? Well, if Jesus can lead you to trust him more, that's loving. If Jesus can move you to depend upon him more, that's loving. It is the most loving thing he can do for us to move us to that. There's probably a verse that's coming to your mind right now, If you're familiar with the Bible, that came to my mind this week as I was studying and preparing. And we hear this verse quoted, and sometimes it may be an inappropriate time to quote this verse to somebody in the middle of their struggle or pain. But yet this verse just encapsulates for us God's purposes in trials and difficulties and and suffering. And I want you to notice that in this verse, these concepts of love, our good, and God's glory, it's woven all in it. The verse, of course, is Romans 8.28. Consider Romans 8.28 through this lens. And we know that for those who love God, this is a love relationship, God, the creator with his creation, his children with their Lord, all things, not just some things, not just the good things, not just the happy things, not just the pleasant things, all things work together for good this again is the jesus-y definition of love it is for our ultimate good for those who are called according to his purpose point number one what's the purpose of god what's the purpose of god his glory love (laughs) our good god's glory all things, not just the easy things, not just the clear things, but the difficult things, the hard things, the unwanted things. He is working all things for our ultimate good and his maximum glory. God has a purpose in it all, and God has a plan in it all. And think about God's providential timetable. This is what we're talking about here when we talk about deity on delay we're talking about what we perceive as being okay this is the timetable that things need to work out lord is it's going to happen think about the timetable here there's a somewhat curious verse in this passage where jesus kind of talks a little bit about time chronology the day it's verse nine look at it again i'll try to explain it verse nine jesus says are there not 12 hours in the day and when he walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now, what does Jesus mean by this proverbial statement? Well, the Jews divided their days into halves, kind of like we do, morning and evening. The first 12 hours, the last 12 hours, except they didn't divide it at 12 being midnight, but the daytime and the nighttime. Typically, there's 12 hours of daylight and there's 12 hours of nighttime. And so what Jesus is saying here is that in the 12 hours of the day, that's when things get done. That's when things are accomplished. And I don't care who you are, you can't make less the number of 12-hour daylight hours that are going to be in the day. Now, what is Jesus saying here? I think in part what he's saying is, guys, let's go to Judea. They're not going to cut my life short. They're not going to cut life my work. They're not going to cut short my ministry before the 12 hours are up. God's got his day, and anyone who walks in the day, you're going to be able to do whatever you need to do. But I think also implied here is that you've got a limited time to respond to Jesus that there are 12 hours in the day you wait too long you're going to stumble Jesus knows that he's going to die he knows there's coming a time when the daylight will end and Jesus also knew that death would not have a hold on him i find it interesting that i think all three songs we sang this morning celebrated the resurrection of Jesus from the dead This is our God. This is our Savior. I'll close with this. In 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to the French physicist Jean Baptiste Leroy. In that letter, 1789 was when he wrote it, he was extolling the new constitution that had just been ratified by the colonies. This was to be be the governing document that governed this nation of states. And he was very confident that that this U.S. Constitution would stand the test of time far beyond just the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, now into the 21st century. He was confident way back then that this document would be a document that would govern this nation in perpetuity. And so he's writing to this Frenchman extolling the value and the benefit of this document, the United States Constitution. But notice what he said. It's a famous quote. You've probably only heard the second half. He said, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. We've heard that death and taxes phrase, right? But Ben Franklin was exactly right about death and taxes. <laughs> it is appointed, according to Hebrews 9, it is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment. One of the most disturbing things for many people, jarring things for many people about life, is that it will end. We all have an expiration date. Only two things can be certain for sure, death and taxes, which is precisely why we need to know the one who defeated death. Which is precisely why we need to know the one who has conquered the grave. Which is precisely why we need to know the one who says to Martha in the very next chapter, I am the resurrection of the life. We'll see that next week, not in the next chapter, the next passage. Why? Because this Jesus, he superintends everything that enters your life. And he loves you deeply. In fact, I'm going to end this message where I started it with this question. How would your life be different if you were absolutely convinced of these two things? Jesus loves you. And number two, he knows what he's doing. And of these two things, number one, he does. And number two, he does. And that leads to my last thought. There is nothing more certain about life than that it will one day end. Ergo, taught you a Latin word. Therefore, so it is absolutely essential that our lives are resting in the one who has conquered the grave.